With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Good to have you back with us for another episode. I'm Ali Maxwell. In the studio with me today, Michael Cox is here. Mark Carey is also here. And we're really excited to have John Muller with us. Hello, John. Hi, how's it going? Very well. Welcome over to London. Always good to be here. How's things? Things are good. Working hard? Hardly working. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we've always given you on this podcast the nickname the big ticket because your your pieces that you publish on the athletic site are always major events and so the fact that your trip your arrival in london has coincided with the publishing of a big ticket john muller piece means that this week's topic is well it's just landed perfectly as well because we're going to be looking at the evolution of pep guardiola's tactics over the last 10-15 years we're going to be looking at it through the prism of four particular areas of the pitch also works well because in that piece you took a look very specifically at certain matches that Pep had managed against Thomas Tuchel who's been a kind of it's been a familiar duel in the last decade or so right so uh, on Tuesday night Manchester City hosted Bayern Munich Tuchel's Bayern Munich as of very recently and they beat them 3-0 how did that game look tactically? You know, I thought it was a very good game, uh, much more than the scoreline suggests. And I think both managers hinted at that after the fact. Tuchel was happy. Pep was unhappy despite the 3-0 result. And I think we'll probably talk about some of the reasons why that was. Feels like, Mark, a lot of the narrative online since this game from uh, the the tactics heads that I follow on Twitter in particular, and also in, in Liam Tharm's breakdown of the game, a lot about City's out of possession, shape and press. There's always emphasis on, on the build up with Pep's teams. But the current City side looked like physical, pressing monsters, maybe more so than ever. Yeah, they they had a good 4-4-2 out of possession where De Bruyne stepped up as well and they stopped essentially Bayern being able to build out with uh, with their defensive midfielders. They sort of funneled into wide areas as well. And the way that they pressed from the, the front, I mean, Liam includes it, they had 15 final third regains, which was their most in a Champions League game this season. So it shows just what their intent was to to press really high, but they did it with, with purpose, with the, the typical Pep Guardiola consideration, and they did it to great effect. And, and Michael, when we're asking the key question with City, can they, will they win the Champions League this year for the first time? Mostly that question has been framed around Erling Haaland, his goals, whether or not that could be the difference in tight knockout games. But could this extra strength, extra quality, better rhythm out of possession, could that be a big factor as well? Yeah, maybe. It's tough to know because I think City have been favourites for the Champions League pretty much every season since Guardiola came in. So yeah, it's obviously about time they won it. But you asked me midway through the quarterfinal stage in, in various other years, I would have said yes. So, uh, yeah, let's wait to see. How many Premier League did you win? Six. Six. Do you have the same squad, the first uh, Premier League six one? You have to shake, you have to move. With the same guys, it's almost impossible. 
we change. After defeat and win, we change, me included, we change. In the beginning, you accept things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you win, you accept less. So there are so many reasons for Pep Guardiola being at the forefront of our minds when we talk about football managers over the last decade, decade and a half. One of them comes down to recruitment and squad makeup. And, and Guardiola has always been very clear on what's needed on a squad level to compete continuously, to win titles back to back, to go again, to repeat. And he described that to Rio Ferdinand in an interview on BT Sport. But we're mostly interested in the football tactics. And thankfully, we've got a great subject here, at John. The, the way that you looked at this was to break it into different parts of the pitch. Um, how did you approach the, the process of writing this article, which you know could have been a million words? I think what I was interested in was defining uh, positional play, which is the style that we associate with Pep Guardiola, as more than just a single system, because he's continually changed the way that he's approached tactics while still trying to keep some of the same principles intact and keeping the same goal of moving the ball effectively into the opponent's half in order to counterpress, in order to set up good pressing structures like we saw against Bayern, uh, essentially to play a field position game through the possession game. And we talked about some of the ways that he's tweaked different positions according to his squad available at the time, according to his circumstances uh, in order to you know, achieve that goal. To someone with a slightly less educated mind tactically, Michael, it's so easy just to focus on in-possession stuff in terms of the patterns of play, in terms of the chances that it will create and working into goal-scoring positions. And then there's so many more layers to it, just as much for what might happen when you lose the ball as what happens when you have the ball. Yeah, I think we're probably more aware of that than ever. And uh, I do think it's... Um... It's fair to almost focus on the possession phase because when you look at what came before Guardiola, when Mourinho and Benitez, for example, were dominating tactical discussion in this country, it was all about, you know, we talked about the shape without the ball. We didn't really talk about what they're doing with possession. When you have a manager like Guardiola who came along and instantly just focused on keeping the ball, yeah, I think it's natural that we focus first and foremost on what they are doing in possession. We're going to start with fullbacks. I feel like we talk about fullbacks all day, every day on this pod, and, and rightly so, given the evolution of that position over the last decade or so. <laughs> John, in terms of the way that Pep Guardiola has used fullbacks at Barcelona, at Bayern Munich, now at Manchester City, um, possibly the, the biggest variability in the roles that they've played for, for his sides over the years? Yeah, quite possibly. And I, I think that... One of the things that I highlighted in the fullback section was that 10 years ago, Guardiola's teams, like a lot of teams, uh, very frequently used fullbacks as overlapping attacking weapons. And that's something that I think we've seen disappear from Guardiola's game to a large extent and uh, coaches who, who kind of follow similar possession uh, positional styles these days. It's much less common to see overlapping fullbacks, and it's because of the risks that that creates uh, in defensive transitions. You know, it's it's very effective to send your fullbacks around the outside of inverted wingers who are dribbling in. It causes a, a sort of decision point for the outside defender. But even if you're successful and even if you get the ball to a fullback, you know, all the way at the byline and he puts in a cross and the goalkeeper plucks it out of the air, well, now your fullback is all the way at the end line and how is he going to get back, right? Is it too much of a generalization to say that did Guardiola kind of learn to protect against the transition a little bit more by not having overlapping fullbacks when he was in the Bundesliga because the Bundesliga is known to be more of a transitional league and is it he was trying to protect against that knowing that in La Liga it's probably a little bit going to be a little bit more possession based whereas you know in the Bundesliga they need kind of more central areas covered. 
I mean, certainly he was afraid of the Bundesliga's counterattacking prowess. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he inherited a team from Yupankis who was, had just won the trouble and were a very good team that played a 4-2-3-1 with two overlapping fullbacks. Yeah, in 2013 against Tuchel's Mines, uh, he still had two fullbacks who very frequently overlapped on the wings. And by 2016, the next game that I wrote about, the last game of Guardiola's Bayern career against Tuchel's Dortmund, you didn't see fullback overlaps at all. He had faced that out of his game. And you very rarely see it, I think, at modern Manchester City either. I think that has been a pattern as well in a lot of top teams. I mean, you look at the Arsenal-Liverpool game at the weekend and both sides had a fullback going into midfield. And you go back to the, the last Premier League season before Guardiola joined in 15-16, and almost every team is pushing their fullbacks really high on the overlap and are getting done at transitions. And I think in a way that played into why Leicester won the league, because Jamie Vardy was probably the best player in the Premier League at finding the space between centre-back and full-back and pouncing on the break, you know, making Danny uh, Drinkwater's passes look absolutely incredible, whereas, you know, in hindsight, maybe just the, the style of football suited him at the time. So, yeah, it has been quite a, a big shift, not just Guardiola, but I think Premier League in general. With Bayern Munich, Philip Lahm is always someone that comes up when we talk about Guardiola's tactics and funky or surprising things that he that he's done uh, over the last decade or so. Just talk me through how Lahm became an important part of his system, nominally a fullback at that time, then very much not a fullback under Pep Guardiola. What what was his thinking there? What could Lahm do from the middle of the pitch that he couldn't do from the outside? So Lom was a key player from day one um, and not as a fullback at all. He had been a very effective attacking fullback under Heikus and Pep came in in the summer and knew that he wanted to play a single pivot system, which I think that we'll talk about the roles of defensive midfielders. But because uh, Bayern had played a 4-2-3-1, their midfielders weren't used to that role, which can be very different uh, in a double pivot than in a single pivot. And he found in Lom uh, certain qualities that were more effective in that role. And so initially, uh, during the 2013-14 season, he used Lom as a, just a straight-up defensive midfielder. And later on, as his system evolved, uh, Lom would frequently play as a right back who would sometimes come into midfield. And that inside fullback role is one that we've seen him continue at Manchester City. Yeah, I mean, at Bayern, he was lucky. He had Lom and Alaba, who were two players who had played in central midfield in their younger days. When he got to City, he tried doing it with the existing fullbacks and it didn't go so well. Gail Clichy and Pablo Zabaleta tried it, but it wasn't really going to work. And yeah, he's been through a few players who have done that role well. I'd say maybe the most naturally suited to it would be Zinchenko. Obviously, he's left and is doing something similar at Arsenal. Um, and it was interesting to see, I mean, he's, he's kind of gone out of the team in the last couple of months, but around Christmas, it was interesting to see Rico Lewis come in because that's what we were introduced him to. I mean, I'd never heard of him really before he came in. He played this role and he almost looked like he'd been kind of groomed to play that role. I imagine for the for the last two or three years of his development, he was doing something similar because he just looked so natural on it. In the end, Guardiola's actually moved away from players like that and he's gone towards, well, almost playing four centre-backs across defence, albeit one tucking inside and one moving into midfield. But yeah, you do wonder whether now if you're a young fullback coming through, this isn't just like a funky bonus thing. I mean, if Man City, Liverpool and Arsenal are all doing that in the same Premier League weekend, you have to think, okay, this is a standard position now. Yeah, the reason that Guardiola liked Lam in midfield was that he had the ability to read the game, uh, to anticipate plays, you know, to to turn on the ball very quickly, uh, to make very short, precise passes, all these qualities that aren't necessarily associated with the fullback position traditionally. Enrico Lewis is another good example of a fullback who has all of those qualities to play in central midfield. And so, yeah, I think that in the same way that ball-playing centre-backs 
uh, have allowed him to do things with center backs that we wouldn't have seen in the past. This new generation of fullbacks who are brought up with a different skill set than the generation before can play in midfield in other ways. I mean, he he didn't always stick to that approach, but if you look at Germany at the start of the 2014 World Cup, Yogi Love was doing the same throughout the group stage. He actually went away from it and moved Lahm back to to right back, which I think suited the team better because Germany really didn't have any other fullbacks. But yeah, it was it was successful enough that it was considered, you know, something that uh, I'd say a less advanced side tactically were going to do as well, just because Lahm was was very comfortable in that position. And I think it's worth pointing out that in the 2013 game against Mines that I talked about, um, Lom started as a defensive midfielder, but it really wasn't until Byron switched back to a 4-2-3-1 with Lom at right back, just like they had won the treble the season before, that they exploded for four goals in the second half. And sometimes, you know, playing familiar roles can suit players. I must say, I never quite got the Lom thing there. I got the idea behind it, and he wasn't bad in that position, but he was so good at right back. I did think they were often taking away more than they were getting. Uh, using him at central midfield, certainly with Bayern when they had, you know, options there. Germany, the start of that tournament, they had fitness problems. I think it maybe made more sense. But he was just such a good right back. I think it was a bit of a shame to lose him from that role. I just find it incredible to think about what it must have been to have been a young fullback developing in an academy, an elite academy, let's say between five and 10 years ago, where... Everyone was talking about how, as a modern fullback compared to those that played in the early 2000s or the 90s, you had to have incredible physicality, stamina, athleticism, and also the technique to cross, to contribute in the final third. Because all of a sudden, these players had as much say on a team's attacking output as some of the the more nominally attacking players. And so all of a sudden, the profile of the average fullback at the very top level changed fairly dramatically. And now it feels like almost within less than a decade, within half a decade, 50% of the elite fullbacks are being asked to play a completely different role entirely. Just last thing on the fullbacks, um, John, you wrote this season's version of City has the most cautious fullbacks, if they can even be called that, of Guardiola's coaching career. There's sort of stages that you can move a fullback back, right? They can start as a bombing, overlapping winger type. Uh, maybe they can play in the attacking half space the way that Joam Cancelo did for City last year. Uh, but you can also play them on the second line as just a strictly inverted fullback in the uh, the buildup. And that's what we've seen, you know, John Stones is doing for City right now, where he rarely goes beyond the second line, right? And very frequently drops into the back line from the midfield. Uh, and and so that's that's what we're seeing right now is that he's playing very frequently for players who we would call center backs traditionally, uh, lining up two center backs on the outside and and then one drops into the back line, one plays in midfield. The target is Stones. Talk about, talk about John Stones, please, before Holland, please. <laughs> John Stones first. Can someone explain to me John Stones' role over the last few games? Because maybe it's just been a couple of strange moments, but there's been more than one occasion where I've been watching City and you more or less have an idea of who's going to be on the ball in which area of the pitch at any given time. And I've suddenly realised that there's John Stones in an area that I w- wouldn't have expected John Stones to be in. Well, has there been a change in his role in the last couple of weeks? Certainly so. I think he said in an interview just how much he's having to adapt to it and that he's not necessarily doing anything that is kind of revolutionary on the ball. To, to John's point, that he's just kind of being in the right positions at the right time, keeping the play ticking over. Um, I thought it was interesting to see that 
rather than kind of inverting from fullback in the Bayern Munich game, especially. There may have been other occasions, but John and I noticed it that in the, the Bayern game, he was coming from centre-back and almost stepping forward into midfield rather than two players moving. It was just him shuttling up and down a little bit. So that was that was a, a new thing that I've, I've noticed in recent weeks. But um, yeah, he said himself that he's still very much learning how to kind of play that role, but Guardiola clearly trusts him because he's such a good player on the ball. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, well, a lot of fullbacks in Pep systems now end up in build-up either as part of the, the back three, the three players in the back line who help with build-up and quite often in what you'd call a central or defensive midfield zone. Uh, John, so let's move into that area of the pitch. And I think the key word is pivot here when we're talking about the evolution of Guardiola's tactics. Can, can you pick up and explain what we mean by pivot, the different types of, of pivot, and then we can discuss how Guardiola likes to, to view this area of the pitch, of course, where he himself played? Guardiola played as a defensive midfielder in his career, and he always said that he liked to be a single pivot, uh, which is, you know, one one defensive midfielder uh, on the second line, right, with two or three center backs behind him, which means that he's really kind of the hub at the base of midfield who has to be able to receive, turn in a very tight and dangerous space, uh, know where the forward passing options are going to be and keep the buildup moving centrally. Uh, a lot of teams during the last 20 years have moved toward a double pivot, right? And so when Gordiel came into Bayern and he moved from the 4-2-3-1 to using Lam at the base of midfield, that was a pretty major shift in terms of how they built up. Um, and yet, even though Guardiola is kind of theoretically uh, in love with the idea of a single pivot, he's never practically played with a single pivot uh, consistently. He's always found other ways to drop another player in from, uh, from midfield or to move a player in from the sides uh, because there are reasons why sometimes you want two guys on the second line, whether it be for uh, defensive solidity or just to have a player taking advantage of the open space that a single pivot can create when he pulls to one side or the other. Right. So the idea is that a static double pivot, if you like, with two players standing next to each other and let's say two centre-backs standing broadly next to each other behind that can sometimes stifle passing angles and the ability to play through teams and and, and find angles in possession. Is that fair to say? But when we talk about a dynamic double pivot, that's probably more towards what we see from Guardiola teams where the key is movement off the ball, is moving the opposition around and creating those angles for yourself. That's right. In a 4-2-3-1, you naturally have sort of a square at the back of your buildup, right? These awkward right angles. Uh, your two defensive midfielders are in places that are you know very easy to scheme for for the opponent's press. 
Uh, but if you have a single pivot who can move to one side or the other, it gets harder for the press to know who's going to track him. And if they the does move to one side, that creates a space on the second line where someone else can move into that space, create a dynamic double pivot and receive the ball uh, with a little bit more time to react. Michael, a few players that Guardiola has managed in this position spring to mind. Sergio Busquets, obviously Lam we've mentioned and, and that experiment. Rodri currently flavor of the month at Man City. Um, what about this area of the pitch when it comes to Pep, do you think of? Yeah, I mean, it's worth remembering that in his first season or second season, there was almost controversy that he was favoring Busquets over Yaya Toure. You know, Toure was seen as the the kind of classic holding midfielder at that time. And, and Busquets was, I think, initially a less impressive player. He's, he's, not a, he's not someone who catches your eye the first 10 or 20 minutes you see him. But the more you watch him, the more you realize what Guardiola saw from him. Just so comfortable receiving the ball under pressure. Incredibly good at playing disguised passes through the lines. And even though he's had some good players since, I still think of him as maybe the best fit for a Guardiola team. Obviously, at Bayern after he used Lam there, he had Xabi Alonso who came in. And I think that was maybe the most interesting uh, holding midfielder he's had because Xabi Alonso was, I mean, he was regarded as a world-class player for a long time. But I actually think his level went up so much when he went to Bayern. I think he was a much better player at Bayern than he was at Real Madrid or Liverpool. He just seemed to offer um, better positional sense. I thought his he went from playing kind of spraying diagonal passes to hitting line-breaking passes into attack. And I think that was uh, probably a lot down to Guardiola. Listening to you speak about Busquets reminded me of a little bit of football history that I love. Um, when everybody thinks of Busquets, they think of the classic line that you watch the game, you don't see Busquets. You watch Busquets, you see the whole game. Mm. This quote is often attributed to uh, Vincente Del Bosque. That's not who said it. Uh, it was the wife of a message board poster in like 2012. <laughs> and somehow this like became attributed to Del Bosque. And now everybody thinks that it's like this great bit of footballing wisdom, which it is. You know, it's, it's a great line. And it just came from a random poster's wife. I love that. <laughs> That's absolutely incredible. I mean, Michael and Tom Warville and I went to the Italy-Spain semifinal of the Euros uh, summer of 2021. Despite the fact that was a Euro semifinal with a penalty shootout that decided it watching Busquets is my is my sort of strongest memory of that game. We had the perfect view right at the top uh, behind one of the goals, a real bird's eye view, and it gave an incredible view of his passing angles, the gaps that he was playing passes through that look risky and scary, but seemed to never, you know, affect his team in a negative sense. It was, it was an absolute joy to watch. I mean, Rodri now, Michael, I called him flavor of the month. It's not just because he scored a, a screamer on Tuesday night, but... I always have to ask you about semantics here. Are we calling this a pivot, defensive midfield role, hmm. number four, number six? Where are we at with this discussion? Because I'm so scared of saying the number six role in case someone says that's a number four, mate. Yeah, difference between Spain and England, I think, traditionally in the numbering systems, isn't it? But uh, yeah, I don't mind. But Rodri, he's had a great season. I thought actually first half of the season, he was one of the, I mean, really up there, maybe close to the most impressive player in the Premier League. He did have a couple of bad games around Christmas time or January. He kept on making some kind of silly mistakes. But at his best, I think he almost combines Busquets and Torre going back that, to that debate from Barcelona. He's got the the awareness and possession of, of Busquets, but he's also very physically powerful and he is just quite a dominant player. You know, and it's not just the four centre-backs across the back line. They've got Rodri in front. And that is, I mean, it's quite intimidating to play against, isn't it? And he's also got this incredible long-range shot that we saw 
the other day in the semi-final. I mean, that's not the first time he's done it. Maybe a slightly different technique to what we've seen before, but he offers a goal-scoring threat as well. You know, he's done it enough times that I think if you're playing against him, you're going to close him down. And once you close him down, that can open up space for others. feels like the level that he's playing at, and in particular, the other you know, the other players that would operate in that part of the pitch were Rodri unavailable. He could be one of Manchester City's most important players, just purely in terms of, of the drop-off if he were to be absent for any period of time. Uh, and Michael, we were discussing this on the pod Slack channel the other day and, and Adam, he wondered aloud about other players from other Premier League clubs and this position of the pitch in particular, wondering whether th this position might have become to whatever extent you can say this, the most important in the Premier League at the moment. You know, Arsenal with and without Thomas Partey, very different teams. Manchester United with and without Casemiro, very different teams. Newcastle and, and Bruno Guimaraes was brought up. Fabinho at Liverpool was brought up. It, it's quite a compelling point that these number sixes, I'm going to say it, <laughs> in terms of the drop-off between starter and replacement, you know, could be the most important position on the pitch right now. Yeah, maybe. I think it's always been an interesting position in the sense that if you write it down on paper, if you write down a formation on paper, they've generally got five players behind them and five players in front of them. Of course, in the dynamic nature of a football game, that's not always the case, but they do have a quite a central role. And I think the pivot, I mean, it always, I'm not sure it necessarily works in English just because it's so obviously kind of translated from what the Spanish call it, but it is a nice word. I mean, it does kind of sum up the role quite well. I think as much as anything, there's not too many opportunities to kind of look into the numbers in this discussion. But I, if I'm not mistaken, I think that Rodri certainly, we've spoken about Enzo Fernandez in the past, will be players who will almost invariably have the most touches on the pitch. When you talk about their importance, I think it's because they are, you know, I think Enzo Fernandez has been described as a metronome. They are that person on the ball who is going to dictate the, the play, everything that we've spoken about. And, and off the ball, it's a different profile of player, but like a Fabinho, historically a Fernandinho to be that person to protect the defence and hoover up any loose balls from midfield. They just have that diverse skill set. So I think it's no surprise that they are, they're already going to be seen as very important, but their importance is increasing because of how much they need to do on and off the ball. Mm. No doubt. Uh, let's move forward and let's move wide again uh, to the wide forwards or the wingers part of the pitch. John, this was a, a, a big part of the piece as well. There's a, a lot of different ways you can skin the cat when it comes to wide attacking players. Uh, talk me through uh, Pep's era so far. Yeah, one of the key principles uh, for Pep, at least nowadays, is that he likes his wingers to play wide. And the reasons are fairly obvious. It, it stretches the defense laterally, right? It creates opportunities uh, for runs in behind. It creates opportunities for midfielders to shoot the channels uh, for through balls, cutbacks. All, all the good stuff that we associate with Man City starts with those wide wingers. But when he came into Bayern Munich, again, he was inheriting this team that played with overlapping fullbacks, narrow inverted wingers, Frank Ribery, Arden Robin. And I think that at first we saw those players continue to play narrow and to have a lot of positional freedom, uh, especially in the attacking third. And that was effective. You know, they scored goals, they assisted goals, but it didn't give him the slow buildup that he needed uh, because the width is all about having safe outlets at the front, right? Not just stretching the defense, but having ways that you can pass the ball out to the wing, pass the ball from the wing back into the midfield, swing it around to the other wing on the other side, move the team forward slowly. And if you have your wingers, you know, moving in towards goal and combining then you don't have those safe outlets and the buildup gets rushed and then you don't have the good counter-pressing structure. Those Barcelona wide forwards, Michael, were, were pretty iconic and they were helped by the fact that they had 
Messi and Xavi and Iniesta operating in central areas and sucking so much of the, of the opposition focus onto them. But um, yeah, Henri, etc., always springs to mind when I think of Pep wingers and wide forwards. Yeah, definitely. And I remember writing an article when he was confirmed as Bayern manager, Guardiola, wondering whether Ribéry and Robin would work in his system because we were so used to kind of wide forwards going in behind, generally breaking into space and getting on the end of through balls rather than necessarily dribbling themselves. I think if you forgive a kind of broad categorization, I think we've probably gone through four different eras of Guardiola wide players. The ones at Barcelona were were basically converted strikers. I mean, Omri was a striker. Eto'o was a striker. David Villa was a striker. At Bayern, you had two players who'd become accustomed to playing as inverted wingers, cutting in and shooting under Van Gaal and Heinks. His early Manchester City side, they were direct, speedy players who generally went down the outside with Sané and Sterling. And now he's gone more towards, I would say, Playmakers who want to dribble and drift inside. So Grealish on the left and Mahrez on the right, sometimes Bernardo Silva. They're not quite inverted wingers mm. because I think they're less direct. They're a bit more playmakery. Certainly Grealish would have thought of himself as a number 10 a few years ago. But yeah, there's been a, a shift, I'd say, generally towards a slightly more cautious type of wing. I mean, Sam Lee has written quite a lot uh, of times this season about why Guardiola prefers those players wide now, why he got rid of Sané and Sterling. And it's basically about being more cautious with the ball, essentially. Even though they, you know, are playing on their inverted foot uh, and they receive wide and will frequently dribble in, they don't dribble all the way in most of the time, right? They're not trying to get in and score goals. They're really just trying to slow play down and then bring it back into the middle so that City can create for Holland. Uh, and that's why we can see a guy like Bernardo Silva lining up at winger for Man City because he's great at that control role. He always effectively slows the ball down. Sometimes he dribbles past, you know, five Byron players just for fun. <laughs> Uh, but he's he's not a goal-scoring threat, you know? And, and of course, all these things are connected and maybe the most obvious ones in terms of connection are the wingers and the fullbacks. I mean, I would have said a couple of years ago that what Guardiola does is he either plays his wingers being wide and his fullbacks tucking inside and being narrow or vice versa, or the fullbacks overlap and the wingers tuck inside. I think what we have now is, as we've just mentioned, we've got players who are dribbling inside and slowing play down from the flanks, but actually the fullbacks are narrow as well. One's coming inside into defence, One's come in to be a central midfielder. So it's when you look at it just purely on a kind of top-down bird's eye view basis, it does feel a bit more static, a bit more cautious, a bit more narrow than what we would have associated with Guardiola maybe five years ago. Is the attacking partnership that involves the wide forward now for Pep more about the the number eights and the wide forwards rather than the fullbacks and the wide forwards? If you just look, I always like to look at the average positions touch map type thing after after games just to try and get a, a snapshot of where players you know were generally in possession of the ball and and sometimes that can be very very misleading particularly if players have swapped flanks and things like that during a game but i i love looking at a guardiola touch map partly because um you normally have rodri in the center circle and then harland on the penalty spot and then everyone else is in the half spaces basically yeah, and who is the player who provides the most width for City in the attacking phase? Often it's De Bruyne, starting as a number eight. I mean, obviously his role varies. Sometimes he plays to the left, sometimes he's number 10. But, you know, whether it's Mares or Bernardo Silva who plays there, it's opening up that space on the outside for De Bruyne to overlap into and cross. So, yeah, it's the width comes quite dynamically at times. 
I asked Pep Guardiola a question actually this season um, at the game against Bournemouth and That's I actually cool. uh, yeah which wasn't a flex but it was pertaining to this that <laughs> I basically said about the there were so many different combinations in the, the box midfield that they had and I wanted to know sort of how it's it was so plug and play it didn't matter who the personnel was it was just the, the roles were exactly the same and it was really impressive so I asked him about that and he, he explained the, the roles of the, the central midfielders and he said in his answer he's like but most importantly they have to know to play wide so exactly as you say with we know Kevin De Bruyne is the obvious one but he really asks his number eights you know number tens arguably you could call them that but he really wants them to to play wide so it's definitely by design that they're doing that and he he makes it key to their role probably just as a as a line quite a nifty way of of describing another reason why Pep Guardiola has been such a transformational tactician over the last 10 years is that Kevin De Bruyne a number eight and attacking central, mostly midfielder, leads Manchester City for crosses by miles. In fact, he's pretty much the only player who's allowed to cross for Man City. And again, if you'd have said that in any previous era, that the, the central midfield player would be making the most open play crosses, I dare say that would have been very, very unusual uh, indeed. Let's just mention Arsenal uh, in this part of the discussion briefly. Arteta, often described as a Pep disciple, um, currently leading Pep in the Premier League table, lest we forget. So in terms of the wide attackers, Michael holding width uh, in, in order to create space for, for example, the number eights to operate in nice dangerous areas in those half spaces like Erdegaard, like Xhaka, whose, whose role was written about and discussed earlier in the season. Uh, it feels like this is a, a big part of Arteta's arsenal as well. Yeah, it is. They tend to do it really with the, the natural wide players in the 4-2-3-1 with Martinelli on the left, opening up space for Xhaka inside, and Saka on the right, opening up space for Odegaard in the, the right channel. But they have varied it a bit. I remember the um, the game against Tottenham at the Emirates early in the season. Their second half improvement really came from Ben White playing an overlapping role from the right-back position. And I think he's done that much better than I would have expected at the start of the season, considering he was a really converted centre-back playing out there. Um, and on that occasion, they basically attacked with the front six, and it worked really well against the a Tottenham side playing a back five. But yeah, they do it very well. They play with lots of width. And um, yeah, there's, there are a lot of similarities. It's the obvious kind of comparison. But I do think Arsenal and City, you can look at them and there's a there's a very obvious influence there. I mean, it's amazing really that, uh, you know, it could be that the championship is won by a former Guardiola captain. The Premier League might be won by a former Guardiola assistant and La Liga as well might be won by one of Guardiola's favourite players as well. That's nice. Vincent Company, Mikel Arteta and Xavi. Looking forward to discussing Xavi and Barcelona if and when their title is confirmed. Uh, let's move right to the top of the pitch to the striker position. I suppose right to the top of the pitch wasn't always the case when Messi was uh, the false nine for FC Barcelona. I dare say that uh, probably those aforementioned pesky wide forwards were probably operating uh, higher on the pitch than Messi. Rather than going Barca, Bayern, City as part of the discussion of Guardiola strikers, is it easier to say false-ish nines versus proper-ish nines, um, Jordan? Yeah, I think that's an easy split. Um, from early in his career, that was kind of the one big tactical innovation, although, of course, nothing's new in football, right? It wasn't, it wasn't an innovation, but the way that he used Messi... Uh, in the Barcelona team as a false nine, as a striker who dropped off uh, but still arrived in the box to score goals was sort of the thing that Gordio was famous for. When he showed up to Bayern, he dreamed and and tried uh, uh, to get Ribéry or eventually Robin to work as a false nine and it just didn't quite work the way that Messi had. 
uh, and he's tried, you know, other sort of false nine like arrangements at City, but he's never had a pure false nine who worked the way that Messi did. And so it's just been sort of different combinations of skill sets uh, that his strikers have and, and how he arranges the team around them. Yeah. And I think even within false nine, you know, within the realm of false nines, we've seen a big difference for me. I mean, Messi is the, the classic false Sounds nine. Sounds like your next novel, The Realm of False Nines. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds quite nice. I mean, the thing is with Messi, he kind of inspired everyone to play without a conventional striker. But he was scoring like 60 goals a season. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's, he basically was a number nine. He was just a number 10 as well. And I think last or the, for the previous two seasons, City were often playing without a proper striker. But that was, it was an even falser nine because they had Gundu in there or Grealish or Mares or Bernardo Silva, whoever it was. And their top goal scorers were Gundogan, who got 12 goals, I think, in that third title winning season. And then last season, De Bruyne, who, you know, he scored a hat-trick against Wolves. He was a bit kind of uh, streaky with his goal scoring, clearly an assister more than a goal scorer. That, for me, is a completely different thing than playing with Messi up front. And also the fact that he rotated who he was using there. I mean, it was five or six players, Foden as well, I should have mentioned. Five or six players who were playing that role at any one time. You can call them both false nines, but for me, they're completely different strategies. We're seeing current City team playing with Haaland. We've done a whole episode about the benefits which are very obvious of Erling Haaland and also potentially some of the drawbacks tactically and on a team level um, in terms of previous out and out number nines by Munich Lewandowski even Mandzukic what sort of a, of a role did they play in in the Pep team as a, as a number nine so in the in the 2013 2014 season Mandzukic was usually Pep's go-to center forward, but he wasn't the focal point of the attack in the same way that Lewandowski or Holland is. Uh, he was very kind of, even though he's a fairly traditional center forward, he was very selfless, would vacate central channels, allow Ribery or Robin to, to get in uh, and score goals. And so the goals were very evenly distributed around the Bayern squad. Lewandowski changed that. Uh, he became very much the central uh, focus of the attack. And as the team got more positional, as the wingers stayed wide, the goals all ran through Lewandowski. Uh, in 2015-16, Lewandowski scored 30 goals, which was the most that anybody had scored in the Bundesliga for like 30 years since Gerd Mueller. Uh, but Bayern as a team were scoring fewer goals uh, than they had before. And I think that we've seen sort of a similar thing going on with Holland, where he's eating up everybody else's goals. Uh, you know, he's setting records, but Man City as a team are scoring about the same as last season, maybe even a little less. And in terms of the outer possession stuff, there was a suggestion in your piece that the presence of Haaland or a striker of that type, rather than attributing it just as a problem of him personally, is an issue out of possession potentially in terms of Pep's ideal. Yeah. So Haaland is even unlike Lewandowski in the fact that he just does almost nothing on the ball except for score goals or provide assists in the box, right? That's He almost only touches the ball in the box. But that doesn't mean that he's not contributing to the buildup. Uh, what he's contributing is effectively fixing the center backs in place and creating space between the lines. So it is effective in opening space for Gundogan, De Bruyne uh, to, to create. But I think that because he's not contributing in the buildup in the same way that these kind of fluid false nines, these maybe double false nine combinations that they were using the last few years, uh, that gave City a much more uh, controlled buildup than they have this year. And so I think that as a result, Pep has had to kind of rethink his structure in order to control the counterattacks, in order to control the defensive transitions uh, that he's constantly worried about. 
we did a piece uh, fairly recently with Sam Lee about Holland's off-ball runs, and it's almost it's been used previously as a stick to beat him with that, or stick to beat Manchester City with. They're not always finding him, but to John's point, every run that he makes is still useful because it is dragging the centre backs just five yards further towards their own goal. It's opening up spaces else elsewhere that you'd see on the, in the punditry. Like there's another example where he should have played it through, but it's looking at that wider picture, that bigger picture of how they are still getting into pockets elsewhere with the number eights and things like that. So I think it was that on average, a third of Holland's runs that he makes, off-ball runs towards the goal are found. You know, interpret that as you will, but either way, whether he's found or not, each run that he makes is with purpose and it's still useful to the team, whether he's found or not. And you have to target some of those runs a, because Holland will score a lot of goals from them, but B, because it keeps the center backs honest if they're worried that you'll, you'll actually attempt those passes. But City don't want to attempt those passes yeah. every time because if they do, they get stretched out, right? The faster the ball goes up the pitch, the faster it comes back at you, Juan Malillo like to say. And I think that that's something I think that- it was actually Juan Leo's <laughs> nephew's girlfriend. <laughs> I'll post got a message for on, a, on Reddit. Yeah, it was. I remember that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I think that we saw that, you know, at the very beginning of the season, uh, City played a game against Newcastle that was just very end to end because they were trying to cater to Holland's strengths and hit him every time. And they were getting hit back uh, very quickly on the counter. And Pep was extremely uh, stressed out by that. <laughs> and so we've, we've seen him try to slow the team down in different ways, including with the wing play that, that we talked about. Uh, in order to use Haaland's strengths, but not constantly be hitting the ball over the top for him. I know we've discussed Haaland and City to death at this point, and I realize you can't attribute you know, everything that Man City have done this season to Haaland and the change in system with Haaland. But isn't it the one of the great reflections of football as a sport and football tactics that Manchester City bought <laughs> a striker who may well be the best striker of all time, who has broken records for the amount of goals that he is scoring. And yet as a team, they don't score more goals than they did before. And they're conceding, is it the second most that a Guardiola team has ever conceded? That's what they're on pace for right now. So yeah, the, the defense has gotten worse and the attack is really about the same as when they didn't have a striker at all. I mean, that's great, isn't it? It means we'll never run out of things to say. Keeps us in a job. <laughs> it's been really interesting to, to hear... All of this, guys, I, I guess, Michael, the, the sort of obvious way to finish is, even though it feels like we're only nine months into the current era, the current evolution, if you like, um, have we got any way of working out what the next sort of city side under Pep Guardiola will look like? Because this must be, which, what is this, Pep 3.0 at City, would you say? Yeah, I think so. There was the first two league titles that felt very... 4-3-3, the two really quick wide players. Then there was the system for the last two titles with, with no fixed striker. And now we've gone back to a fixed striker. I feel like maybe if there's another slight evolution, it will come because Haaland will actually improve his all-round game. I mean, it's worth remembering he's only 22. Not every good player or not every player can be good at everything at 22. And just in the same way that most players, I think, probably have the all-round game and then add goals to their game. I think maybe Holland will come deeper, become better at link play, better at providing for others. And I think actually there's been some games this season where he has been quite impressive in terms of his link play. He's not creative as such, but of course, that's partly because other players aren't making the runs. But I mean, it'd be interesting to see. Guardiola always wants to evolve, I think, probably sooner than most people realize he needs to. He's always tried to stay ahead of the game. 
And I mean, assuming Holden stays at Man City, I think the only re- the only way I can see that they would evolve is if his role individually evolves a little bit too. I mean, with Guardiola as well, with same with Jurgen Klopp to a certain extent. Often the players that he come that come in, the high profile players, do take a season or so to to kind of hit their their peak. And we've spoken before about Jack Grealish and how he's posting some amazing numbers this season. He was actually doing really well last season in the underlying numbers, but the point still remains that he's kind of broken through all over again at City. Um, Holland's hit the ground running, but you you think that if that his second season will be even stronger in terms of his all-round game, getting used to the way that his teammates like to play and how his manager likes to play. So if this is him operating on a not-so-good season, then, yeah, God forbid what happens next season. I think we've already seen Erling Holland develop as a player in the last couple of years. Uh, I think that he's increased the variety of his runs in the box. He's gotten better at using his head. He's not just a striker who operates in transition as he frequently was at Dortmund. Uh, and yeah, he has very good chemistry, I think, with Gunduan in that adjacent channel. Uh, he's, he's good at kind of dragging the center backs out and then putting Gunduan in. And, and he doesn't kind of take as many risks in his link-up play as he did at Dortmund. And so, sure, I think that we'll see him become a better player in small ways. But he's already a really good player. <laughs> and I don't think that you want Erling Holland not to be Erling Holland, right? Mm. And so I think that maybe... You don't wait on Holland to become a different player, but you do find ways to solve those defensive transition issues uh, that continue not so much in the second half of the season, really, to Plague City. So we've already seen Pep adapting uh, to to provide better support behind Holland, and I think that we'll see him continue to experiment because that's what he does. Well, the good news is that we've got John, Michael, Mark, various of their colleagues keeping a close eye on all things Pep Guardiola, football tactics and writing it up for The Athletic. Um, They are favourites for the Premier League, despite the gap between themselves and Arsenal. They are favourites for the Champions League and strong favourites for the FA Cup as well. So the treble is a possibility. It would be the next step in a, in a remarkable managerial career so far. Uh, it's been great fun to talk about Pep Guardiola, his tactical evolution, all of the different and fascinating tweaks that he's made over the years. Thank you so much to John, to Michael and to Mark for joining me on this episode of the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. We hope that you'll subscribe to this podcast feed. We hope that you'll subscribe to The Athletic if you aren't already. Head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics for the best current offer on how to do that. We hope that you'll join us next week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. The Athletic.